Hey everyone, how's it going? James here from the future with just a quick editor's note. The original recording that we did for Blink, I basically ripped out the intro that we did because it is woefully out of date by the time that you folks are finally listening to this episode. Uh, so instead we're going to dive straight into um, just our discussion of, of Blink this week. Uh, it has been a bit of a break for us. I had my wisdom teeth ripped out. Callum's been a bit sick and traveling a fair bit. Um, we get into this in our Utopia episode, which is going to be up next week because, uh, you know, we've been gone for a month and we wanted to give you guys some some fresh content uh, pretty quickly. So, uh, yeah, without further ado, let, let's just dive right into Blink. <laughs> Oh, I'm Salas Sparrow, and here I am in this big old house. Oh, duck! <laughs> I enjoyed that. <clears throat> Blink is episode 10 of series 3 of the Doctor Who revival, directed by Hetty MacDonald, notably the first female director on the show, who goes on to work in season 9, and written by Stephen Moffat. My boy, it is good to have him back. Um... Alright, so as you know, most weeks we do struggle with the plot description and this week it's going to be even worse because Blink is simultaneously one of the most well-documented episodes of all time, so everybody already pretty much knows about Blink, um, and it's also very wibbly-wobbly, timey-wimey, confusing. Um, bare minimum basic, in case you are listening to this without having seen Blink, which would be kind of insane, um, we follow the adventures of Sally Sparrow, who is played by Carrie Mulligan. Uh, she is... Uh, just like a nebulous kind of like just a young woman in London enjoying her life and whatnot. Um, she likes to take photos of old things and so she goes out to this house to do it and while she's out there she essentially gets caught in a time loop involving uh, these aliens called the Weeping Angels uh, which are like stone statues um, that sort of cover their eyes um, and they only move when you can't see them. Uh, if they are able to touch you though they zap you back in time and then feed off of the time energy that you leave in your place and they've done that to the doctor and to Martha and so now the doctor has to communicate to Sally from the past through like people and through DVD extras for some reason um instructions on how to sort of like re return the TARDIS to the doctor and stop the weeping angels from doing what they're doing um I guess that's the bulk of the plot right yeah I don't think you've missed out anything in particular um and anything you have missed we're going to talk about now anyway because um, this is sort of a, an episode that you can't discuss. You can discuss individual scenes, but really, like, you need to be talking about the whole thing in your discussion of it, because it is such a wholly complete uh, hour of television. Would you agree? It, it truly is. Yeah, I, I'd completely agree with that. Um, so, I guess, I mean, look, as always, we're going to kick things off. Callum, what do you think of Blink? Hmm. What do I think of Blink? What do I think of Blink? What do I think of the most critically acclaimed episode of Doctor Who? Uh, an episode that is frequently voted the best of the new series, if not the whole series. Um, it would be pretty bold of me at this stage to say I hate it. <laughs> um, uh, we, we are just coming off of last week's episode where I was like, mm, critically acclaimed, adored, beloved episode. I fucking hate it. <laughs> so... <laughs> Look, you're right, it would play well into our, like, brand, but, um, <laughs> <laughs> I can't, I can't fault this episode, I really, really can't, and, you know, I hadn't watched it in such a long time, 
purely based on its reputation and because I sort of, in the back of my mind, I felt like, you know, there's other stuff out there. There's other good stuff out there. I don't, I don't know if the tricks of this episode are going to hold up on rewatch. So I just kind of avoided it for a very long time. Um, but then rewatching it for this podcast, um, it's just as fresh now as it was then. Absolutely. It's so, so tight. It's so, so successful. And I've got like a few notes here about why I think it is so successful. Like we could just, ru- I can like list them off, like scary, iconic monsters, funny, brilliant script, like well-played characters, like really good actors in this one. Obviously, Carrie Mulligan being the main one, uh, just an all round great concept, a great sci-fi concept as well. But like, most importantly, it is just so fucking neat. It is 45 tight as fuck minutes of television that have a, such a satisfying conclusion to it. Um, like it, it's just such a, it's a gift <laughs> is how I can describe it. It's a perfectly presented, perfectly wrapped little gift for you to unwrap and enjoy as an episode. Um, yeah. What are we going to talk about this week, James? <laughs> it's kind of the rub. Like, Blink is, like, it's take-proof. Do you know what I mean? There's no, there's no hot take. There's no, like, scathing. It's just, it holds up. Like, it, it is, like you said, it's it's a perfectly wrapped tight little gift. Like, it's an impenetrable bit of writing as far as I'm concerned. And, and you know, not just writing, but like you said, performance-wise, um, aesthetics-wise, it knocks every single element out of the park to such a degree that, like, I think it's still the most critically acclaimed episode of New Who. Is that right? Easily. And more than being critically acclaimed, it's the episode, and I find this really funny, it's the episode that people often tell people people who haven't watched Doctor Who, they like watch Blink and you'll like, you'll get into it, which is slightly disingenuous because like Blink is also unlike any Doctor Who episode in that it doesn't even have the Doctor in it for a start. <laughs> um, but it, it it isn't a typical Who episode by its nature. Um, and so I would never give it to somebody to, to try and uh, get them to watch the show because I think they'd be I think they would be genuinely disappointed to start there and then go back. Um, yeah, I would agree with that. I think the jump in quality that Blink has over, um, I mean, especially the rest of this season, um, is like kind of staggering. Uh, which isn't to say, like, that obviously Doctor Who is capable of, of being this good, you know, and it does, f- not frequently, but I would say it does occasionally stumble back up to this kind of level of quality. Um, but you're right, like, this isn't quintessential Doctor Who. This is just an, a really good bit of, like, horror sci-fi. Um, and that's... I don't know. It's it's possible that you could maybe construe that as a um, like a criticism of it or a criticism of the of the wider show. Um, I think it ultimately ends up being um, just like a nice diversion from the formula instead of a glaring omission from it. If that makes sense. Oh, absolutely. And um, you know, this episode is based around a bootstrap paradox and. Um, time mechanics, uh, which is something that show like for a show about time travel, really it never did before this point to this extent as well. Um, but that isn't to say it isn't going to do a lot of this uh, in the future. And obviously, Stephen Moffat's time in Doctor Who is very much wrapped up in exploring these actual concepts of like time mechanics and how traveling through time 
works essentially. Um, so it has its its echo felt in episodes before it and following it. I think. Um, you know. Yeah, I mean, it, it is uh, like it, okay. If it's not quintessentially Doctor Who, it is quintessentially Moffat. Um, mm. it, it is very much his writing on, on that page. I mean, it's poetic. It's very heterosexual. Um, it's playing with <laughs> massive sci-fi ideas. Uh, like it just he understands the magic quote unquote of Doctor Who in such a unique way to me. Um, like I know that we talked about this before on the show, obviously, but um, before we started recording this, I did that full kind of Clara rewatch and then did the Bill rewatch after that. And having that fresh in my mind and then going back and watching the RTD stuff, um, they are so distinctly different in the way that they've tackled Doctor Who. And when you look at the critically acclaimed episodes from RTD's era, Moffat's episodes do stand out like quite of head and shoulders above the rest sometimes. Um, and I think it's because there is a particular way that he views this franchise that is simultaneously taking it as seriously as he needs to and not seriously at all. Um, and that balance isn't always right. I think that when he eventually, uh, you know, inherits the show, I think his first run with Matt Smith is where the balance gets thrown way off. He get, he starts taking himself way too seriously. But by the time you get back to Capaldi or when you look at this time when there is no expectation put on him and he's just writing a throwaway episode of season three that's a Doctor Who light story, he comes up with these just stunning interpretations of the themes and ideas that are already embedded in the DNA of the show. Truly. And it's also like really interesting to think about like how this episode could never have come around because for two reasons, one Moffat, um, I think he had the idea for the weeping angels, uh, in the back of his head, but he was going to insert them into this script that he eventually wrote for season four, which is science in the library. Um, and you can see how they would fit in there. Um, but then obviously that would have t- taken a massive chunk out of this episode's success. Um, the other thing is that he wasn't even supposed to write the Dr. Light episode for the season. He was supposed to write the Daleks two-parter, which is still so mind-boggling to think about what we could have had there um, as written by him. Yeah, because, I mean, his Moffat's relationship with the Daleks is... Um maybe his weakest strain of Doctor Who, I'd say. He definitely doesn't have much to say about them. Mm. But that's that's beside the point. Blink. Blink. Blinkity blink. Blinky Bill. <laughs> Blinkity blink. Uh, Blinky Bill. Um, <laughs> I think it's probably good if we start with some things that maybe we didn't enjoy about this episode, if such a thing exists, um, and just get that out of the way. I have one, if you yeah. don't mind. No, no, yeah, no, you go for it. Because I think yours is the... The one that I think you're about to bring up is the only one I can even start to see the the issue with here. Because I I, I really struggle to fault this episode. <laughs> no, absolutely. And I, I it's, it's also difficult to critique this thing I'm going to talk about. I will stop talking around it eventually. Um, because, because it is acted and enabled uh, so ably by the actors in this episode. Um, But there is a fair amount of the unconscious, typical Moffat sexism uh, on display here. Um, The sort of the big indicator that of for that, this is um, 
the flashback to when Kathy is like zapped into the past and she meets a guy in Hull uh, and he basically, he follows her out of the field and she's like, are you going to stop following me? And he's like, no, I don't think I am. And then when we go back to Sally, it turns out that Kathy ended up marrying that man. And it's like, mm. what lesson are you putting down here, Moffat? Like, you can just charmingly woo someone by following them. And that is going to have no... Like, it's just it just has no um, viewpoint or um, sympathy or perspective on, like, the opposite side of that uh, yeah. encounter, which would be I, a strange man is following me. Well, it's like he, he tends to write heterosexuality uh, kind of like a like a little boy you know like it's a very mm. like starry-eyed uh old school and i i mean that as a detriment um romantic style of writing like where like persistence what? and cutesiness are what gets you the girl as opposed to you know genuine human connection um totally. and it's very like he, he is very given to to shorthand and, like I said before, like, very poetic dialogue and whatnot. And so I understand why he plays in the circles or why he runs in the circles that he does. Um, it's just disappointing that, like, yeah, it just doesn't age particularly well. Absolutely not. And if you want to see a clearer antecedent to this in his work, like, you know, obviously coupling the sitcom that he wrote for, I think, three seasons. I can't remember how long that show run for. Like, that was... It, it was billed as, like, basically the British Friends. And it is just about six hetero dudes and six hetero girls um, flirting and being funny and banging each other. Um, and so, <laughs> it's that characterization of how men and women operate that is being inserted here. It's also interesting to think about, like, that this is the only script that Moffat ever wrote for R- Russell... T Davies, uh, that was mostly, if if you could you could argue partially, but mostly set in the present day, um, because he, I think, when it comes to his writing of worlds, he is much better at a world being a world builder and uh, creating spaces to for characters to inhabit that are in a more utopian kind of, um, uh, yeah, like idealistic way of how the world acts, where like situations like this are more uh wholesome and naive i guess um and you know i think for me personally when we get to russ to his actual time producing the show the weaker episodes of his especially with amy and rory's run not so much with clara um is the episodes where he's trying to when he's trying to situate characters and his characters in present day and I just don't think he operates well in that space I just don't think he I think he a just doesn't care about it which is fine um but it definitely shows in like he's just he he can't project a version of reality in a what am I trying to say here he 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 I think he actively rejects reality uh, and at the same time ends up promoting this idealistic version of it that has no real world antecedent uh, and ends up repeating very negative, like, uh, abusive situations like we see here. 
Yeah, the dude just really likes his tropes, and a lot of tropes are um, like systemically sexist. Yeah. <laughs> um, Thanks for uh, summarizing yeah, just... my ramble. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, no. Yeah, you are fine. You are fine. Like I, I agree with everything you've just said. Even as a huge fan of his work, um, it is it's his Achilles heel. Um, yeah, I mean, really, it's it's Doctor Who's Achilles heel is the way it writes interactions with women. But that's a whole mm. other thing. Um, yeah, no, I, I'd agree with that criticism. The same thing can be said again with the, um, uh, what is the detective's name? Uh, with Billy Shipton. Billy Shipton, who, like, super duper charming, super hot. Like, I understand why you write that character as being, like, overly confident and whatnot. And at least in that scenario, Sally is, like, reciprocating the flirty energy. And so there is, like, oh, okay, like, this is a genuine interaction between two consenting adults who know that they're just having fun with each other, right? Um, which you don't get from a girl who's just been zapped back in time and trying to sort of uh, get get her grounding. Yeah, well, I was. I think this is a very helpful segue, what you're talking about, because I do think that uh, the other really poor kind of example with this episode is the half-baked, like, Sally and Larry romance story, um, which we'll get to. But I can't actually fault the characterization of Sally Sparrow herself in that, in that Billy Shipton scene that you're talking about. Like, she is 100% there and just as 100%, like... What am I trying to say here? She is so capable and able and stands on her own two feet. Um, and it, it, for me, plays as a scene of equals as opposed to any particular power dynamic, which is interesting yes. considering he's a cop, <laughs> essentially. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That, I, I agree. I agree. I, I think it's just, it, it knows what it's doing in that scene. And then it uses that meet cute rom-com energy and completely flips the script with its next scene between the two of them. Um, which is obviously much more in the positives of what we're going to talk about. Um, I do like, uh, we should like touch on the, the, the ending romance because it is just like, uh, it's the most like paint by numbers element of this entire episode. Mm. And it's such a small part of it that I do often either forget or forgive it. Um, cause I don't think it's egregious. Uh, I just think it's uh, silly. It's, it's pretty weird, isn't it? Because you have the fantastic sequence, like we will talk about it, but just from the video call and the Western drumlins to the angels, to the TARDIS, to the final resolution there. And then it cuts to a year later and Sally and Laurie are running a shop together and she, and suddenly, like, he's lovelorn and she's like, Ooh, we just were in a shop together. And it's like, I genuinely always forget that scene takes place, even though I know it's so crucial to wrapping yeah. up the whole story. But just- and it's odd because if I could just jump in about the mm. characterization in that, that scene, I would have accepted it more if it had opened them on the shop and then been like, yeah, we're already in a relationship as opposed to the whole, like, we just run a shop together. It's like, why even have that little extra bit of no, they're not together. Just have them be together. It's been a year. They survived something traumatic together. I would believe it if you just gave it to me, but to have her be like, oh, well now that I've got technical closure, now I'm going to start fucking him is like, uh, uh, sure. (laughs) And it's weird, isn't it? Because there's a, I don't know if you read it, James. There's a, a tweet that Moffat did where he talked about, I think he gave his like final verdict on Blink kind of thing. And he mentioned in that, that that scene, he now comes to view as like Sally learning to live in the present, basically, after being so obsessed right. with the past. Yep. Um, I think that's like a neat way of reading 
it, even if it's not entirely supported by the text, because it is just like, uh, yeah, you're, what you're saying would have been way more satisfying for it to just start with them being together. Uh, because it's such a quick turn, you know? It's like, oh, I don't, I couldn't have nothing to do with you, Larry. Get the fuck out of my face. We just run a shop together to. I mean, she's not that extreme about it, but yes, I, I do understand what you're saying. <laughs> it's pretty cold, though. It's pretty cold to be like, we just run a um, shop together. I- yeah, but I read that as like it's again, it's that traditional uh, tropey rom com dialogue of like, oh no, I definitely don't feel anything. Like it's that like you know, too much denial. Do you know what I mean? Like it, I don't know. To me, okay. it, it just reads as very basic straight romance stuff. Um, and yeah, like again, doesn't remotely tank the episode because it's such a small thing. And Sally is mm. a phenomenal character regardless. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, you know, it's, it's a thing. It's a thing with Moffat. And if, if I feel like you can't talk about Moffat without talking about where he stumbles because, uh, you know, I know that too many people focus on those stumbles too much. I know I tend to focus just on the amazing stuff. And so I think bringing some balance into that is a good thing. Absolutely. Um, and I, I think you're just personally, I think you're also like very good at picking up on his flaws. So don't cut yourself too short. Oh yeah, no, I know. I mean, look, it's easier for me to do that with the character stuff that maybe I don't like as much Mm. folks in what maybe a year and a half, two years time. when we finally get up to Clara, you're going to hear my confirmation bias just all all over the place. Oh my God. We're going to be doing like three episodes on one episode of Clara. Oh, she is you know what? It's fine. It's fine. Sorry, I, I watched a Hellbent video earlier today. I'm all I'm all hyped up on my Clara stuff again. Um, <laughs> back to Blink though, because uh, and I think if we're going to take us out of the criticism, unless there's anything else you wanted to bring up, I, honestly, there's nothing else I can really be like. That's a flaw with this episode. Right? Oh, um, like uh, oh, one. Okay, <laughs> just one other thing, which I do find a problematic, maybe. Um, is that we never, Larry never gets closure about what happened to his sister. I find really odd, even though I I have to assume it takes place off screen. Um, yeah. What do you think? Uh, I I would say it definitely takes place off screen. I think that, um, by having, so, um, Larry's sister is the one that gets zapped back in time and then uh, she sends a letter to through through her family bloodline and is like, hey, just tell my brother that I love him um, and, you know, make up whatever happened to me kind of thing. Uh, logistics aside of a woman just going missing in modern day London is, is a whole other thing that we can maybe talk about. I don't know. I don't really. Whatever. Um, no. The brother stuff... Carrie Mulligan, uh, sorry, Sally Sparrow says to him, oh, she's just like, she's gone away on a trip or whatever, right? And I took that as we're in the middle of something, now is not the time for this conversation. And then you'd imagine that in that year-long gap, um, there had been a a conversation and a reckoning with everything that had gone on. Um, That it happens entirely off screen is to me just an indication of how little this this script cares about Lawrence's emotional reality because it's not his story. No, and that's absolutely fair. I I don't think that that I disagree with that reading. Mm. It's one of those things where it's like I wouldn't call that problematic. I think it's just bad writing, <laughs> you know. Like, or rather, it's just it's short. It's a it's a casualty of a very tight, you know, script yeah. that some things just a, need a, to a be a very tight script. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah. Other than that, look, let's just have at it. Let's just talk about what works. 
I do. I think every conversation that you want to have positively about Blink is going to start at one of two places at the very top. Uh, and I feel like too many people choose the Weeping Angels. And so I would like to highlight Carrie Mulligan's performance here because her performance plus his writing of Sally Sparrow is one of the most cohesive bits of character work the show has ever pulled off. She is so in tune with what Sally Sparrow needs to be. Um, Carrie Mulligan is such a natural talent. Um, it's just, it, it's the Carrie Mulligan hour, you know? <laughs> it, it is. And, you know, this is obviously the second time we have a Dr. Light uh, episode in this new series. Um, the other one obviously being Love and Monsters, but that... Like, obviously, Elton Pope was the main character in that, um, but, you know, he was supported by a, a, a quite a large cast, I would say. And, you know, Jackie Tyler's there as well. Um, it, whereas this is a story that really hangs on how much you like and believe in Sally Sparrow. She is she is the main character and, the like, pretty much the bulk of the episode is entirely about her. Um and so Carrie Mulligan just takes that task and runs with it. She is so good. I think it's no surprise that this was an episode that launched, was part of her launch into stardom um, for her personal career. Um, yeah. She plays it so very well. And like, like I said before, because she is uh, holding this episode together on her shoulders, kind of, you could even make the argument, this is where the start of Moffat's um, doctor, female doctor, um, campaign begins maybe uh yeah I, I could definitely see that i think amy i mean obviously we haven't rewatched amy's uh era yet and so i i don't think we can really speak with much confidence on what genuinely goes on in there because we're both relying on on our faulting memories at this point um but i definitely think that there are elements of of clara in here um and and bill of course as well like he is I think it's been said before that one of the criticisms some people have of him is that like his women are hyper competent uh, to the point mm. where they become inhuman. Um, and Mary Sue's. Well, yeah, Mary Mary Sue is is one way of reading that. Um, I think with a Mary Sue though, that's often deployed by sexists to deride the way that a woman is written. Whereas I feel like what Stephen Moffat catches a fair bit is that he goes so far in the opposite direction to make them so perfect that it becomes itself an act of sexism to not allow these women to have flaws. Mm. Um, and I mean, again, having, having just watched the Clara stuff, I think that's a wildly inaccurate and disingenuous criticism of Clara because she is a deeply flawed character. Um, and obviously Sally Sparrow only gets one episode, but to your point about, um, what does exist in her, that competency, that sense of adventure, that wonder, and that, um, you know, also the ability to be, to be scared and to be, you know, uh, to get things wrong or whatever it is. Um, I could definitely see an argument being made for like, this is when he started solidifying some of the ideas that he has about women. And then next season we, we go into river song, which is uh, like a whole other thing as well. So I was going to say, and river is really the, the other main component of that through the Amy and Rory era of women who hold their own against the doctor who are better than the doctor. I do think you're absolutely right in what you're saying in that, like making these female characters hyper competent is just going in the complete opposite direction and ends up being slightly sexist in its own right. Um, I was just thinking then about that scene with Billy Shipton though. And like, I think Sally does have some really good 
flaws that don't um, that don't Im- impact on her power and her capability. And it's sort of the same thing. I can't believe I'm the one doing this. It's the same thing with Clara, <laughs> where like Clara is shown to be like to cry on multiple occasions, but that is never a point of weakness on her part. It's it's a show of her strength that she's able to still go through with what she does do. And I think it's the same thing on a a much smaller scale here with Sally, where it's like she will be flummoxed and embarrassed or, you know, um, she can crack a joke during a tense situation. You know, she is, she is multi, I don't want to say multi-layered because we do ultimately get a very, not two dimensional, but um, quick read of her because it is such a quick episode and there's so much to do. Um, but we do see a whole character formed, I think, out of the words on the page, but mostly by Carrie Mulligan. I think she is the, she is what makes it work for me. Oh yeah. Yeah. She definitely brings it to life. And I think about the contrast between scenes where like, you know, we start with her being investigative and, and, you know, sort of like uh, very gun ho about, Oh, you know, let's go and explore this old creepy house. I don't care if there's a sense of danger here or whatever. And then you get that really like impossibly great line uh, where her friend asks her like, what's so good about sad things? She's like, it's happy for deep people. Um, and I think Stephen Moffat, like in that tweet you were talking about, like he describes that as like a really like smarmy kind of smart ass line. Uh, and I think that's great. Like, I think it's good to let these women have a superiority complex. I think that's a really thing that's missing in a lot of Doctor Who's women. Um, and then you also contrast that with when her friend gets zapped back in time. I'm sorry, I keep forgetting her name. Um, Kathy. Kathy. When Kathy gets zapped back in time and Kathy's grandson shows up at the house to deliver this, like, letters. And they've got, like, all these photos of Kathy from olden times and whatnot. And she has, like, a proper visceral reaction to it. Because, mm. like, it's her best friend that just got fucking zapped out of existence. Like, and then we go to her later in a cafe, sort of sitting there crying to herself, reading them. Like, she's allowed to go through a solid range of emotions. And then again, moving out of that into the cop scene where she's allowed to be flirty and fun. Like Mm. she gets to have a three dimensional experience within 45 minutes, which is especially interesting compared to what Martha's going through this season. Just about to bring up Martha, because like I was thinking of, uh, I don't know why this has made me think of it, but when she's waiting for Billy at the police station and she looks out the window and sees the angels and she just says to herself, you know, okay, cracking up now. And it's a funny mm. line and it's, you know, it's delivered very well by her, but it just points towards this kind of, uh, it's funny, like Sally Sparrow feels way more adult than Martha does, or indeed any, I'd say, companion written by Russell T. Davies. <laughs> <laughs> and that's me saying it. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, that's... Mm, you're, you're starting to finally come around the mountain that I've been on the other side of this entire time. <laughs> <laughs> um, I don't know, yeah. The other the other moment that really made me like stand upright was when Sally and the Doctor are having their like actual conversation over the DVD. And he... She's, she's a little bit confused and he, she's like trying to understand the time mechanics and... And he just keeps going, you know, it's complicated. It's very complicated. And then she's like, I'm clever and I'm, and I'm listening and don't patronize me because people have died and I'm not happy. And it's like, fuck yeah. Fuck Mm. yeah. (laughs) Sally, you take the doctor to task. Like that kind of gung ho, nothing is a given. I am, 
I don't know. Like, it's just no, so I mean, refreshing, I think, as well in this season to see from our main character. Yeah. Because as we described last week, uh, this season is like, we're really in the throes of the God complex era of, of Tenant's Doctor um, and not not the self-aware part yet. And so to have an episode sort of come in, especially right before the finale that we're about to get and... You know, it doesn't knock him off his pedestal. It's not as if it's out here, like, being a criticism of the Doctor. It just resets him back to, like, the well-meaning idiot with a box. Like, it just makes him a character again, as opposed to the Messiah figure in all these people's lives. And so, it does free up Sally to be like, hey, don't don't fucking patronise me. Like, (laughs) like, you don't know me well enough to do that kind of shit. Like, there's so much more room to move with these other characters surrounding the doctor when you do bring him back down to a a more human level. Um, Mm. And as you know, and that's a really good byproduct of again, a doctor light episode. You remove him from the um, action of the events. Um, You know, he has that great line at the end of his little like DVD extras to her, like, it's up to you now. Like this isn't about the doctor saving the day. It's about Sally doing the right thing and and being smart and getting it done. Um, that whole section where he's like, where the music kicks in and he's like, that's the end of the, that's the end of the transcript. It's all down to you now. Like, that's just a Mm. perfect sequence of Doctor Who, of television. Yeah, it it really is. Um, Hattie McDonald? Yeah, McDonald. Yeah, Hattie McDonald's like direction um, in this is also definitely worthy of note um, because she simultaneously films certain scenes like they are a humdrum rom-com set in a rainy London town. Do you know what I mean? Like it's very normal at times. Um, But then she also pairs that with like a really keen eye for horror and for angles and for catching things out of the corner of your eye. Uh, The house itself is so brilliantly designed. They've got like a mirror where you can see the front door from where Sally reads the message on the wall and so like the lines of sight for what's going on inside this place are always really evident to you which is useful in a horror movie because it or in a, in a horror piece of media because you need to know the rules of what's going on for you to feel any tension for it um and between mm. the script writing the angels as well it does which we'll get to i'm guessing next but um between that script and uh mcdonald's direction it just it constantly is ramping up its tension in a believable way uh, yeah, I think that's that's pretty true. Um, I think I said to you earlier in the week that I've sort of remarked that the direction felt pretty unremarkable, um, which I would take back because there are like some really cool stylistic flourishes, like the swing zoom, like from when Sally's like, we're going to West of Drumlands and then they go shoom to the house. <laughs> um, the I think the way that the Weeping Angels, obviously... Obviously, the way the Weeping Angels are shot uh, with the flashing lights, a sequence, which we'll talk about in a minute. Um, I think that they're... It, it's, I think it's probably the sign of a good director that all of those flourishes can still be there. And yet, be I can still have the impression of it being unremarkable because it is just so seamless. And you... I think the the worst direction is the type that makes you pay attention to it. I think that's not yeah, uh, yeah. That's not effective. Yeah, it's it's a, a invisible guiding hand basically in this episode. Absolutely. Shall we segue just slightly into? I think. Look, these are a creature that need no introduction. They are infamous in Doctor Who. 
possibly with diminishing returns, but we will definitely talk about that in the episodes that they actually feature in further down the line. But here they are, best and, well, best appearance, I think, in the show, The Weeping Angels. What do you think? Um, I mean, she's iconic. She's the moment. She's, you know, everything. <laughs> <laughs> Just imagine um, Lady Gaga. She's, what is it? Flawless. Amazing. Oh, yeah. Can't do Gorgeous. no wrong. <laughs> All those, like, little zoom-ins on her face. Um, no, look, I mean, like, they're, they are the weeping angels. You, you, you can't go past them. Like, they are, in every sense of the word truly iconic for the show um they are solidified in everybody's brains um it, like even the normal people like you can talk to a normie about a weeping angel and they'll know what you're talking about um i, I think that's an impressive bit of monster design on the level of like a dalek basically um well, and this is the funny thing about them right because like the daleks are definitively the main iconic monster for doctor who but you could make the argument that that, that was the case when it was originally on the air but the weeping angels are definitely the modern era's, like, best and most successful creation um, and have come to sort of be the the main um, villain, for lack of a better word, for this era. Uh, yes, I, I suppose so. Um, in terms of public, like, recognition. Oh, yeah, in terms of public perception, absolutely, yeah, no, for, for sure. Um, and, I mean, going back to this one, I think you noted to me just how, like, when we talked about um, Hattie McDonald's direction style, and you go back and you watch an episode that kicks off something as iconic as The Weeping Angels, and you're like, oh, that's right, this is just, like, just a really solid episode of Doctor Who. Like, there, there's no self-awareness that they're launching mm. the next massive uh, iconic thing for Doctor Who. Because how could you possibly know that? They just thought, like, it was another monster of the week. Exactly. Um, throw all the shit at the wall, see what kind of happens. Uh, and, yeah. Well, you need only look at the Doctor Who confidential they produce for this episode. Because, like, it's got maybe 10 minutes of Blink content. And then the rest of it <laughs> is, like, dedicated to talking about old Doctor Who and, oh, I remember what it was like back in 1973. Um, like, they just did not... They didn't not give a shit, but it, it was the Doctor Light episode. It wasn't meant to do anything other than just fill a gap in the schedules. Um, so yeah. it is just, like... It's that kind of thing where, like, all the pressure's off, so you can just kind of go crazy because nobody's really caring much about what you're producing. And then they make this, uh, especially, <laughs> and this creation in particular. Uh, it's just inspired. I think what most surprised me going back to Blink uh, is that, you know, you remember the Weeping Angels. Like, you remember what they look like and their basic concept and the whole, like, oh, they, they only move when you're, when you're not looking at them. Uh, all that's fantastic. What I'd forgotten about Blink, though, is the bits of dialogue and lore building about them as like these silent assassin race who uh like the doctor describes it as like they kill you with kindness like they they let you live a completely full life uh and they feed off of the energy of what could have been your life as opposed to just outright killing you which mm. is already such a fascinating concept i don't think the show ever really does much with the actual morality of that but as a baseline it's, it's a it's a good jumping off point um and just this idea of, like, the, the built-in defense mechanism of turning to stone, uh, the most lonely existence in the world because you can never be seen by somebody. Mm. Like, there was so much good shit there. And then I look at um, Forest of the Dead, or whatever it's called, when they when they come back in um, uh, the first season of Moffat's run. The and I'm like, Time of Angels. 
Time of Angels, yeah. And I'm kind of like, eh, you know, they, they. I don't think they ever truly live up to the potential of their emotional depth. I think that's super cool and that's fine. Like if that's all you want them to be, that's totally chill. But again, it was just surprising going back to the source material on them and being like, oh, that's right. You wrote this like good shit about them. <laughs> totally. I, I think that's a common criticism people have of those, of the next Angel story is that it, it kind of throws out a lot of the stuff that makes them so intriguing. Um as monsters mm. and doesn't capitalize on like like they don't in for instance in that story they don't uh send people back in time they just snap people's necks and they're just like just basic killers yeah. um but that's what is so fascinating about this story is that like their method of killing is to send you back in time and then there's a real dialogue and discussion being had here with regards to the presence relationship with the past um which I find really fascinating for a Doctor Who episode to like for for Doctor Who to talk about time is such a novelty. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, it is because like it's the premise of the show, but it's so rarely utilized. Um, and I, I, I like that Moffat, even though he gets very messy with it with River, um, I like that he at least swings for the fences when he writes a time travel story. Yes, look, he yeah, I think that's definitely his strength, and I think such a rich area of storytelling to talk about how we actually interact with time, how time works, uh, all of the twisty turny plots you can like get out of this simple device. It's, it's really, yeah, I, I'm surprised that they don't have never done it before, but then Doctor Who is so often just defaulted to the standard action and adventure like format. Um, yeah. And time travel is just a device to get you there. Uh, and the same with the TARDIS just kind of functions like a magic door that gets you from one place to another place. Um, yeah. Yeah. But it is really good. Just with the Weeping Angels, I just uh, thought then to myself that I'm still to this day so astounded by the ingenuity of the team that made these because I didn't even know, I, I think uh, until very recently, that they were actual actors inside those suits. <laughs> And like it is a bonkers revelation, isn't it? <laughs> it's just I think because like so they must have digitally altered the actors so that like because you can't you can't physically be completely still, so they must have digitally altered it to like get rid of all the juts and bits and pieces. But like, um, it's just so incredible the ingenuity of like I just would never have even thought that they would put actors into them. Like I just thought carve a statue, done, <laughs> put it into some poses. Yeah. Um, but like the, I'm just looking at the design of them now and it is like, they're hellish to look at and so, so creepy and so effective. Uh, we're not the first people to say that obviously, but it's just bears repeating, I think. Oh yeah. It looks like we've been saying this entire time. Like everything that can be said about Blink has already been said. Um, but again, it's just nice to hear it again. <laughs> like, uh, it's, it's the episode that it is, it has a reputation that it does for a reason. Um, and so there was no other way that we, we could sit here for 45 minutes and talk about Blink without just being like, shit rules. <laughs> like, shit rules. Shit rules. Shit, shit rules. Uh, I do want to say um, uh, something that I like about the way this episode handles the time travel stuff is that it is, it's almost like a three-pronged approach to it. 
Um, you've got the baseline horror of the Weeping Angels and, you know, their very concept of sending you back and they themselves are quite spooky and, of course, you don't want to be sent back in time, blah, blah, blah. Like, all that's really great horror stuff, right? On top of that, you've got the sci-fi element of it, which is starts to get involved when um, Kathy gets sent back in time and then um, makes a promise through her bloodline to basically deliver a letter on that day at that exact moment that she gets sent back in time so that when um, Sally Sparrow is reading it, it's like, hey, you know, for you, it's been seconds since we last saw each other. For me, it's been like 70 years. Um, uh, you've also got the, what we're going to get to in a minute when we talk about the supporting cast, but with the the cop, once he gets sent back in time, eventually when Sally meets up with him again, he's like, hey, I've got a message from the doctor for you. Um, and, you know, all those DVD extras that you've been trying to figure out, I got into publishing uh, in my new lifetime, basically. And so I was able to do those things and get those messages to you. Um, and it's just... It's a really neat and well-done sci-fi concept. And then on top of all of that, you've got the fact that because this is so well-written and emotionally resonant, there's a deep human element to all of it as well. Like, it attacks... Like, the three things that Doctor Who can do the best, it does them all at once, you know? It, It truly... It's really hitting on so many different satisfying levels. Um... And with that Billy scene as well, like, you know, you get some really fantastic dialogue from Mr. Moffat. I think you noted the one to me that you really like. Oh, my God. The Okay, so, yeah, once Billy gets sent back in time, um, Sally goes to the the uh, police station to, to talk to somebody about what's been going on, obviously. And that's when she meets Billy and it's raining outside. Um, and they have their flirty little exchange and it's all very sweet and lovely. And then she leaves. He gets sent back by the angels. She goes back inside and the TARDIS is now gone. He's gone and she doesn't really know what's going on. And while she's standing in that, that spot where she was just talking to him, she gets a phone call. She's like, oh, Billy, like, where did you go? Uh, you know, where are you? And it's a hard cut to her walking into, like, a hospice care, basically, where, like, Billy's now in a hospital bed and, like, his literally his last day of his life. And he's this old man, like, just sleeping gently. And she wakes him up and he's like, oh, it was raining when we met. And she's like, it's the same rain. And it's mm. just impossibly good. Maybe the best scene in any Doctor Who ever. I... I just got goosebumps thinking about it. I really had a, a a genuine reaction to to what they did with the Billy dynamic. Oh, it's so good, isn't it? And if you just like, there's a line obviously at the end of that scene where he says, you know, I have until the rain stops, and you just think about mm-hmm. like where we started with this entire exchange, which was just, which was just Sally, like waiting to see somebody about this creepy old house. And then she essentially meets somebody, kind of gets a crush on them, meets them at the end of their death, and, mm. like, sits with them until they die, essentially, is what that scene is saying. Um, yeah, she's and like, it's oh, all, I'll stay with you. And it's all in the space of this one rainstorm. Like, the relationship of time, like, I just, yeah, it's... It's, it, it's really... <laughs> I'm astounded. <laughs> I am astounded at just... But, yeah, like, it's, it's shockingly good. <laughs> it's so shockingly good. Um, and I think it's so interesting to think about, like, just our relation and perception of these kinds of time loops, because they are just, like, so unknowable and un- under- un- 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 understandable, I think is what I'm trying to say. <laughs> yeah. Um, 
that, you know, you can get Sally at the end of like having met somebody like half an hour ago and now sitting with them as they die, having aged up like 30 or so years. Um, that's probably Mm -hmm. an underestimation. Um, and it, but it all just makes sense and it all makes sense in the sense, God, I'm really struggling with my words here. Um, but it all makes sense in the sense that there's the sense, oh my God, I've said sense like 6 million times. Um, there's the sense that this was all supposed to happen. And I think that's also part of the appeal of this episode. It's just like the tight little puzzle logic of trying to fit together, like how the past and the present are interacting with each other. Um, yeah, it's yeah. And then obviously culminating in that final scene of Sally being like, it was me. I'm the one that, uh, started this whole thing off. And then she starts the chain that the doctor will then have to enact to get at that point. Like I, it's yeah. not, it, I don't think it's saying anything particularly deep as a script, but it is just so satisfying to watch it all come together. Yeah. Well, I mean, it doesn't have to be profound or revolutionary. It can just be really fucking good. <laughs> um, True. And I think that's what's so refreshing about it is that um, oftentimes Moffat, he reaches for the stars a lot. Um, and to see him so pared back and, you know, as we said about the origin story, like he wasn't even supposed to be writing this one. And so you do get the sense that like it was very much just like, eh, well, here you go. Here's a script. You know, I'm sure no one's going to give a shit about this one anyway. And to see him without that level of expectation that he often seems to put on himself where he can just tell a small scale love story and not just like heterosexual love, even though like there's a lot of that in this episode, but I said this to you, like it's, it's a celebration of human connection as much as it is a cool horror sci-fi story. Um, and it's, it's Billy, it's, um, Kathy, it's, it's just so good. (laughs) And I feel like we're talking in circles here because ultimately all we have to say about Blink is that it's so good. It's true. It's true. Um, you know what isn't good, though, James? You know what isn't good? Uh, the rest of season three? In a roundabout way, I suppose that's what I'm saying. <laughs> um, the Doctor and Martha are technically in this episode. Uh, yeah, they are. Um, yeah, uh, look, uh, you know, they're there. Um, I will say, at the very end, uh, when Sally hands over the documents to the Doctor, uh, we see the doctor and Martha get out of a taxi cab with bows and arrows. And she's in this, like, she's dressed like fucking Robin Hood. Like she's got this cool skirt on and her hair's all fucking like pleated and stuff. She just looks fantastic. And I'm so sad that we never get to see that Martha look in action. I know what you mean. Like Martha in this episode, I, we unfortunately see her subjected to the same kind of treatment she's had in the past. There's a line where she's like, I had to get a, a jump in a shop and I had to support the doctor. And it's like, again, your experience of time travel is just like working for the doctor basically. Yeah. Um, totally. but, uh, yeah, that last scene in particular, it's just so nice to, I think more so than in love and monsters, when you had like Elton's perception on what the doctor's adventures must look like from an outsider's perspective. And you've got the Scooby-Doo like, ah, with the hoiks and, um, and mm. the absorbloff shit going on. That is so subtler a way of like giving that outside perspective on what their lives must be like. Cause like you just hear the snatches of like what's happening, but it's just Martha in the background, just like saying stuff 
um, yeah, they've got the bows and arrows. It's just like hinting at what a, a larger story could be. But yeah, it's just so understated, I guess is what I'm saying. I don't know. Yeah, no, I, I get it. And I think also having um, a Dr. Light episode, which is also a Martha Light episode um, right now in the season uh, when we are entering very much into like the ending is like essentially a three-parter. Um, and so we're, we're at the end of Martha's run. And so to remove her from it while she is experiencing so much turbulence from the writers is, um, again, it's just... We're going to get into this more so in the two-parter finale because Utopia is pretty okay with Martha. Um, but, like, you know, massive spoiler warning, it doesn't get better from here <laughs> on out. Um, and uh, we'll, we'll obviously, again, Dr. Light episode this week, so we're, we're going to keep it light on the uh, the criticisms of that stuff because you're going to be hearing a lot of it in that finale. <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. Um, do you have anything else to say, James? I don't think so. I, I think I'm pretty content. Um, it's, uh, there's only so many ways we can say that it's good. Um, you all have seen this one many times, I'm sure. It's just, it's not a hidden gem. It's not, not holding up under the, the guise of, under the pressure of time. It's just, it's blink, you know? It's just blink and its reputation far precedes it. Um, there's going to be people talking about this episode for years to come. And I, I, it's just so like, it's so very human that an episode that nobody gave a shit about turned out to be the most important episode of the Russell T Davies era, um, <laughs> inadvertently. Um, yeah. But it is crucially at the end of the day, I think just important to remember that it isn't Doctor Who. <laughs> like it, it obviously it is Doctor Who because it is under the brand of Doctor Who and has the Doctor in it, but like these are not episodes that are meant to um, be the the norm, I guess I would say. They stand out because they because they buck all of those trends. And, you know, next week we're just going to go slap bang into another classic Who scenario. Um, mm. And this episode will feel like a mountain in comparison because of, like, because of just how different it is. Um, and I think that that is worth just remembering when you think about it in terms of its history within the whole of Doctor Who because it it's it's the success is based on I think the fact that it like I've just rambled on about uh the fact that it is able to f- fly so freely in the face of all those conventions um but does that make it Doctor Who mm. I I don't necessarily know if I agree with that because if you look at the critical reception of the show at this time and the popular opinion on it is that like like this was like heyday era Doctor Who like people liked the conventions of Doctor Who at this point uh, and so I think the reason it's as beloved as it is is because it's just good like I I, I think I, I definitely like I said to you at the beginning of the show like I agree that it is not the formula of Doctor Who um, but I don't think it does anything to outright subvert or criticize that formula either I think it's very comfortably playing within the wheelhouse of Doctor Who's ideas themes and tone um no that's that's pretty fair actually to say I think I mean more so just that it's it has the freedom to not have to use its main characters and all the TARDIS, yeah, for instance. Yeah. Um, and so on that level, yeah. it's like, it's not just stepping off the TARDIS. Here we are in an adventure. It's so much bigger than that in scope, really. 
Um, yeah, I'd, I'd agree with that. The, the actually, you saying about the TARDIS, it did remind me of like one thing I do want to say before we wrap up on Blink. Hmm. Uh, and that's because it, it's barely about Blink. Um, but <laughs> I remember the first time I rewatched this, um, I called you and I was like, okay, what if, uh, hear me out. The Doctor and Martha died in the 60s and this was the story of Sally Sparrow finding the TARDIS and becoming a human time traveler. And I know that you want to talk about going outside of the framework of Doctor Who. I'm like literally talking about, fuck it, kill the Doctor, make it Sally Sparrow. Um, But when I was watching it, it's all I could think about is the idea that eventually the concepts and the mechanics of the show Doctor Who could be passed on to a new kind of character as the lead is is something that I kind of have stuck in the back of my brain now. You know, as much as it makes me vomit in my mouth, just as a diehard, died-in-the-wall Doctor Who fan, I think what you're essentially saying is, like, so good for the health of the show, basically. Yeah. And it is what regeneration is supposed to be. Um, but you, with regeneration, you're not at the same time wiping out that person's memories, you know? And so there's all this baggage yeah. that comes along with each change to the show that just keeps getting pulled along. Um, and mm. having having the device of, like, the TARDIS... Like, having the TARDIS to be the one mainstay and just people inherent inherit it and go on these adventures. Somewhat mm. similar to, like, I guess, like, Narnia. Like, the only constant is, like, Narnia. And all these different yeah. characters who go into it. Star Trek. Or James Bond. 007 is the only constant. Like, it changes from person to person, though. <laughs> well, truly, yeah. Like, it's those conventions of that character. But um, uh, I don't think James Bond is such a good uh, comparison, actually. Well, Look, I mean, more like the, the idea of, like, the moniker gets passed on to the next person. Like, I, I like the idea of if somebody like Sally Sparrow travels in the TARDIS for six months and then decides, like... I want to be the doctor. Like I like, because the idea of the doctor being a healer in the galaxy and somebody who intervenes in injustice being bigger than one person and being a, uh, like, like, like it's a moniker. Like it's the idea of the doctor being embodied by whoever next inherits the TARDIS, it's, you know? It's almost like the ending of Buffy. Um, sure. In the sense that like, there are other slayers out there. You know what? We're, we're probably going off on a tangent. Yeah, I don't think that makes any sense. <laughs> well, thanks for that. Um, uh, look, Blink. Shall we give uh, our thoughts, our final wrap-up grade? Yep. Final wrap-up. Shocking. I'm giving Blink an A+. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> Didn't even have to think yeah. about it. <laughs> Great. Yep. <laughs> um, as always, thank you everybody for listening. We will be back in two weeks' time to discuss Utopia, <sighs> which we've decided we're going to do separately from the finale because doing all three of those episodes would just be a bit much. Um, Utopia is a very exciting one. There's a lot to talk about there. We are we're very hyped up for that one. I can't wait. Honestly, I think that we're going to get to see some real good Russell T, which I'm excited for yeah. because we haven't had that in a very long time. On where we've both been on the same level, James. Agreed. Absolutely agreed. Uh, as we said at the top of the show, if you do want to have your thoughts, feelings, or comments read out on here, please feel free to email us at twoheartspodcast at gmail.com. That's two, the word two. Or if you'd rather reach out on social media, you can get us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at twoheartspod, the number two. 
Uh, I have been Callum, and you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at theatricallum. And I've been James, and you can follow me on Twitter at OMG More James. Uh, stay safe, be kind to each other, have a lovely couple of weeks, and we'll see you soon. Bye. Bye.